Now, though we did read a few verses, um, our text for this evening will be singular, and it'll come from the verse uh, from verse seven. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. But this being a psalm of David, I'll begin by reminding us that David, the son of Jesse, was, in fact, a remarkable king. And in him, Israel had a valiant and an experienced leader who led them in conquest over many of their foes and many of their adversaries. Um, And David, even as a youth, proved himself to be a man of remarkable character. Even Even as a boy, he himself had laid his life on the line in an extraordinary measure when he, when he rose up against the giant Goliath. And to the astonishment of all, the lad defeated the giant and took off his head with the giant's own sword. What remarkable potential this young man showed. And along with an extraordinary measure of courage and battle proudness, he also possessed several qualities of character that are very rarely found in today's generation, especially in our leadership. The chief of these virtues being those which were most likely cultivated in his youth when he was just a child, when he was shepherd of his father's sheep. Through firsthand experience, he learned what it means to be faithful and to fulfill the role of a shepherd. In this, he was made to grow in compassion and grace. He learned to selflessly protect and provide and to deal with adversity in such a way as to be able to help others through it as well. But as remarkable as a king David was, He was merely a man, and obviously he had various imperfections. It doesn't take a genius to pick up your Bible and realize David had sin, and his sin actually produced much suffering in Israel and in his own family. But David recognized this innate corruption within himself, along with a sense of his own weakness and his own creaturehood. This understanding brought David out of himself and unto another. He was brought to appeal to, to trust in, to call upon, to worship one more honorable and higher than himself. And although David is one of the most impressive kings in all of human history, and rightfully so, in the psalm open before us, now we see The king calling upon, trusting in, rejoicing in, and exalting another. So our text, the Lord sits enthroned forever. And we'll look at this text. I'll try to open it up for you this evening under these four simple heads. First, the person, then his position, third, his posture, and finally, his Permanence. We'll look at the king that David submitted himself to. So first, the person. We'll look and uh, consider the subject proper. The Lord. The person on display. 
Now, all we're given here is a name, the Lord. But as we think a little bit, we realize that persons are ordinarily ordinarily distinguished by and referred to their, their name. And often a name carries with it great significance and can reflect some important aspects of an individual's character, their origin, their accomplishments, or their purpose. Uh, For example, take for instance, Moses. The name Moses means drawn out. This was the Hebrew, the name given to the Hebrew child, which was found by Pharaoh's daughter floating in the Nile River in a basket. She named him this because he, she literally drew him out of the water. And providentially, God was pleased to use this same Moses to draw out from Egypt his covenant people unto himself. And that name, Moses, being a constant reminder of God's merciful providence in sparing the life of Moses while yet a babe and raising him up to be a great shepherd over the church of God. Another example, Abraham. We know him as the father of the faithful and his name means literally the father or a father of many nations or a father of multitudes. And this name was given him given to him by God himself. Through this name, God reveals his purpose to bring about the redemption of humanity, resulting in the international blessing of adoption, wherein many sons and many daughters of many nations should be reconciled to and made partakers and heirs of God Himself through the work of the promised one who would proceed from Abraham's loins, the father of many nations. And that promised seed is, as we all know, the man Christ Jesus, in whose name salvation is published. And in none other. Christ means anointed. And I know... Brothers and sisters, I'm not giving you anything new, but I hope that this basic overview would still be nourishing to our souls and would be a blessing to us. Christ means anointed. He who is God's only Son, divinely appointed King of kings over all creation. His name is wonderful. His name is Jesus. And it means... The salvation of Jehovah. How John Calvin wrote in regard to the glory comprehended in Jesus' name. That if we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus. That it is of Him. That is, it is, that is to say that it is the very salvation of God Himself. So thus you can see that very much can be communicated to us simply by a name. So we'll consider the name which is given to us in the text in order to try and somewhat comprehend the person spoken of as occupying the eternal throne. So the person on display in the text goes by the name of the Lord. So as most of you know, this phrase, the Lord, is put in our English Bibles to represent the most holy and reverend name of Yahweh. He who is the living and the true God. 
His name is full of majesty and mercy. It is overflowing with glory and grace. So, for a while, let us survey this wondrous name and pray, brethren, that the Spirit of God would illumine us to behold the person who is the possessor of this magnificent title, Yahweh. So first, it is a majestic name, a glorious name. Psalm 8.1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So first, we'll be able to see some majesty in it, I hope, as we consider its origin or where did the name come from? How did we come to understand the name Yahweh? First of all, that this is not a name derived from the imaginations of men. This is not something that flesh conjured up or thought up. This, is, this name is not to be accepted as a testimony to man's incredible spiritual insight or to his innate cunning ability to search God out and comprehend Him. By no means could man's finite understanding and reason, notwithstanding how enhanced and refined it may be by academic and artistic endeavors, could ever reach such a high, high state as to comprehend the eternal majesty of God, nor could any accolade achieve for Him the authority to name God Himself. Zophar in the book of Job said these words, Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. We see this very majestic and glorious name was not something that man just one day realized. But brothers and sisters, it was revealed from heaven. This is the name which God Himself revealed unto His servant Moses in the burning bush. And in doing so, He, re he unveiled to, hum to humanity His exquisite nature. This comes from Exodus uh, chapter 3. This is where we'll find the origin of God's name. And you can turn there if you like. I'll just read one or two verses. In verse, uh, starting in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is that name, brothers and sisters. This is the name, Yahweh. He says, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So we've covered where did it come from? This is the origin of his name. So there is majesty in this that it is far impossible for a man to attain this knowledge, save God, reveal it to heaven. Reveal it from heaven. It is a most majestic name. So then we must begin to press into what is the incomprehensible wonder of this majestic name. 
It is the name of the incomprehensible and unfathomable one. This expression, I am who I am, Yahweh is inclusive of all the perfections and excellencies which are inherent in the divine nature. It represents all of God's virtues highlighted by immutability, infinity, and absoluteness. It notes the reality of His being entirely self-derived and perfectly self-sufficient. Uh, whereas, and here's a quote from uh, the Puritan Matthew Poole regarding this. He says, whereas all other beings once were not, and if He please, they shall be no more. And all their being was derived from Him. And he only is by and from himself. Who can comprehend that? None of us can. He is eternal. For before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I am who I am. This speaks also to the constancy and the certainty of His nature, His will, and His word. The Lord is absolutely perfect and therefore not subject to change. He's constant. And because He is not subject to change, neither is His word. For I am Yahweh, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. He is the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And His countenance is the very light of that eternal city. And there is no night there. He never changes. The Lord is the eternal and is, and is always in every place beholding the evil and the good. He beholds every nation under the sun so as if they were but the drop on a bucket. He is perfectly present in every city, every house, every room, and His eyes never slumber or sleep. And still, because He is infinite, he is so far beyond all things. He is so impossible to grasp and comprehend that you would be... It'd be, it'd be as if you were try, to try to comprehend the ocean in a sippy cup. He's so far beyond us, yet perfectly present among us. And all this is summed up in the majestic name of the Lord. And it teaches us of His immense greatness. The psalmist could not have been more exact than this. Psalm 111 verse 9. Holy and reverent is His name. We would be justified, I think, to fall on our faces with the prophets as we, as we contemplate this name. And then to rise corporately with the congregation of Nehemiah's day. To stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name. 
which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Next, uh, we've considered the name of the Lord as majestic and full of glory. So now I want us to adjust our focus to behold the name of God as most merciful and gracious. The name of the Lord, Yahweh, is a most merciful and gracious name. First, is, it is to be noticed that this name does show forth a great act of condescension on the part of His gracious majesty. The distance between God and the creature is so great that for God to stoop to the level of communicating Himself to us is an act of unparalleled humility. It has been said that uh, well, due to our finitude and our frail mortality, in order for God to communicate Himself to us, it has been said that He must condescend to speak to us in lisp. Even as uh, parents, you, know, you engage in baby talk with, with little kids. It's the same picture when God communicates Himself to us. That is not to say that God has not communicated Himself to us in a very intelligent manner, for so He has. And it is, that is not to give anybody any reign to say the Bible is a, a book too dumb for me. It's below me. But I say this most reverently, that God has stooped so low. A God of infinite, eternal wisdom that cannot be comprehended in language has stooped so low as to use language that is comfortable and understandable by us who are most ignorant. Even plain ignorant people can understand His words. The Lord He's a gracious and condescending God. Again, this is a great act of condescension because God is perfectly unique in His status as the one and only absolute and eternal being. Therefore, He has no need of a name. To he has no need of a name to distinguish Himself. He is alone in status. There is none like to Him. He is the being of beings. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. This is what the psalmist said in Psalm 113. Let me, I'll read that again. I want you to get this because it really astonished me when I read this. Who is like Yahweh our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. We must turn our gaze upwards and sometimes we got to strain our necks to behold the glory and the grandeur of the heavens. But the Lord has to look far beneath Him. And even then, the heavens are not pure in His sight. Even then, He is so exalted and He is so holy. He is so separate. He is so other that the heavens themselves are impure in His sight. There is none like Him. Why does He need a name? But God has graciously, the high and lofty one, has taken upon Himself a name. 
to communicate Himself to us that we may truly know Him. And what an act of gracious condescension this is. For what is man that you are mindful of Him and the Son of Man that you care for Him? Who are we that God would come so low as to take this name upon Himself to reveal Himself to us? Then God humbly takes this most gracious name unto Himself to make known to us His covenant. The Lord reveals Himself thus as Israel's Redeemer. Now, most of us know this, that as we look at the origin of His name in Exodus chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read uh, just a verse here. Exodus 3, 6. And And God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. We heard of this this morning, right? Of God's, co- of God's faithfulness to, his, to the covenant He made right here where He said, I will bring them up and I will give them the land. In verse 16 and 17 of the chapter, He says, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites. So in the revelation which God gives to Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush, when He reveals His glorious and majestic name of Yahweh, He ties it and connects it with the covenant when He says, I promise by My name I am who I am. I promise I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt and into the promised land. He is that God Almighty which covenanted with Abraham, as we heard this morning, and with Isaac and Jacob. And as He was a God to them, so here He freely associates Himself with the children of Israel and promises to be for them everything He was to them and more, a God and a Redeemer. I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. A condescending promise indeed. For I am who I am. The same that ever I was. A righteous God and a Savior. Then one more important thing to note about the name uh, Yahweh, and this is actually in the translation of the name. In the original Hebrew, uh, the verbiage is actually in the future tense. What do I mean by that? Whereas we read, I am who I am, the actual Hebrew says, I shall be what I shall be. Again, to lean on the shoulders of Matthew Poole for a moment. He explains the significance of this 
in a twofold manner that I found very wonderful indeed. Uh, first, because that tense in the, this is a quote, because that tense in the use of the Hebrew tongue, the future tense, comprehends all times, past, present, and future, and to come, to signify that all times are alike to God and all are present to Him. So it is that this name contains the blessed assurance that as Yahweh has ever been a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, so he shall ever be. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. The second significant suggestion that Poole gives us is this. To intimate, though darkly, according to that state and age of the church, the mystery of Christ's incarnation. I shall be what I shall be. That is... God, man. And I who now come in an invisible, though glorious manner to deliver you from this temporal bondage shall in due time come visibly and by incarnation to save you and all my people from a far worse slavery and misery, even from your sins and from the wrath to come. And as far as I can judge... I believe that we'd be right in accepting that interpretation of the revelation as such. For did not Isaiah say that Christ was the mighty God? And according to Micah, his goings, the, the goings forth of Christ have been from of old, from everlasting. Who else can we say that about? Exactly. The Lord Christ even took to Himself the title of I Am in the 8th chapter of John. Then in the Revelation, Christ again appears and declares, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. That is, Yahweh. I am, I shall be who I shall be. So to put it like this, the revelation of the name Yahweh demonstrates the merciful, condescending covenant relationship which God has purposed to bring to its fullness in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, together we've examined the name of the Lord and I trust we've been taught at least something about the person who the name belongs to. And I pray the Holy Spirit of God would use this unworthy attempt to get us to get even just a glimpse of the glorious, majestic, condescending, gracious person of the Lord, the person on display in our text. So having looked at the person proper, 
whom the psalmist seeks to display, let us continue by considering next his position. You'll notice in our text, the Lord sits enthroned forever. His position, enthroned. This one of such transcendent majesty, who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, of necessity, I say, He must be exalted to the highest position. He is the supreme royale. He is the most high king, and He must be. He must be. The psalmist says in Psalm 29, Ascribe to the Lord, that is Yahweh, the glory due His name. Yahweh sits enthroned as king forever. See, there's a correlation. Glory do His name. He is king forever. It's, it is of necessity that one of such greatness and glory must reign most high over all. Psalm 22.8, a messianic psalm. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. The Most High God reigns and reigns supreme. All authorities receive their power from Him and they answer to His standard. All government and principalities and powers are subordinate unto Him whose throne is heaven and the earth His footstool. The Lord sits enthroned. So now we'll... Consider a few aspects of his kingship. Um, and first, we're going to look at these aspects of his kingship from the perspective of the dread terror which his immortal power affords to his enemies. And then, some of the benefits the sovereignty of the Lord provides for his own covenant people. So, the first order of policy which we shall consider is. The aspect of Yahweh, the king, as a lawgiver. To quote the Apostle James, there is one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. Oh, this universe is certainly bound by an inexorable constitution and immutable decrees that are attributable to the Lord. God. Jehovah speaks and so it is. This is made so clearly evident to us when we examine even the laws of nature. Uh, for example, take the law of gravity. What goes up must come down. You know beyond all doubt that if you pass over the edge of the edge of a cliff, the law of gravity will punish you. So, getting too close to the edge causes you some uneasiness and some anxiety, especially when you see your kids getting too close to the edge, because you know that the inexorable law of gravity will punish you 100% of the time. Or, for example, if you habitually act contrary to the laws of health, and you lack the proper nourishment that your body needs, and the proper physical exercise that your body Needs, you will pay the price. Why? For the inexorable law of health demands it. So you see, these are laws woven into the very fabric of reality. 
And to contradict these laws is to expose yourself to the inevitable and painful consequences. Likewise, the Lord God has prescribed a perfect moral law to govern men. And when sinners try to flex and twist these concrete statutes which proceed from the mouth of God in order to make them more conformable to their own sinful desires or they slight them all together, what can you expect but a fearful expectation of judgment? If you live in lawlessness, you will inevitably suffer the consequences And pay the ultimate price. For the wages of sin is death. This has proceeded from the mouth of Yahweh. The lawgiver. The king. Who sits enthroned forever. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. It is impossible that it could be otherwise. For the immutable God has decreed it. Is it not, brothers and sisters, the most dreadful thing for a sinner to consider an inexorable law and inflexible justice to consider the person of the Lord who sits enthroned forever? The righteous judge, he rebukes all injustice and punishes those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Though today there are those who will hold the Lord and His Christ in contempt, yet your mutiny will be rewarded with sentencing from the King Himself. From His mouth a sharp sword proceeds with which to strike down the nations. The enthroned Lord is also a man of war and with unmatched proudness he combats his enemies with tactical efficiency and thunderous might he will make his enemies his footstool so knowing the dread terror of the immortal king of kings you know your hearts brothers brothers and sisters Knowing the terror of the Lord and His inexorable justice, repent of sin daily. Repent and be reconciled unto Him. Next, we'll consider then the blessedness of His kingdom and the benefits He lavishes upon His people as King. As lawgiver, He is adored and revered as the absolute, supreme, universal, spiritual governor of the soul who alone can bind the conscience and He sets the conscience free. So gladly do His people surrender their own wills and bring every action, deed and thought, subject and captive to Him. And as judge, He vindicates the just, He vindicates the just cause of the faithful. And He provides the righteousness for which His people long for. In our psalm tonight, in verse 4, David declares, 
You have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Isaiah 33, 22. But here is another point. Not only is he judge and lawgiver, he is also the rewarder of his people as king. And indeed, he as king is the very reward itself. As he said to Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. From him who sits enthroned issues forth streams of all manner of grace and goodness. The climate of his kingdom is one of frequent showers, even showers of blessing, as Ezekiel told us, so that the horticulture does flourish and brings forth fruits of love, joy, and peace for the soul. Christ also rewards his people with life, glory, and immortality. Be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. Then, to bring this nearer to you, look with me at the 11th verse and just notice the specific location or situation of this king. Verse 11, Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. This great king is to be found. Where? In Zion. The special, that is, the the Lord is settled in Zion. He is settled in the midst of His people. The special residence of His grace dwells in our midst, even among us. This is my resting place forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. Psalm 132, verse 14. The people of God are precious to Him that is ever, so so that He is ever present among them. He sits enthroned in Zion. Brothers and sisters, He is not far from us. This great, admirable, impressive, almighty King is very near unto us. It was an admirable trait of David, which enamored the people, that he was often found in community with them. Quote, All Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. 1 Samuel 18. He was amongst the people. And so the Lord delights to be present in the community of the saints. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So, O church of God, rejoice greatly. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming and has come to you. Righteous and having salvation is He. What could be impossible for you to overcome? How could you not persevere? What could you not bear, Christian? Shall tribulation 
or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, who sits enthroned in Zion and who has promised to be with us always, even to the end. So, as we have considered the marvelous and merciful person of the Lord and His position enthroned as King, so now I would attempt to do your soul some good by drawing your attention briefly to his posture. And I do mean briefly. These next two headings will be much, much shorter. So bear with me. Thirdly, his posture. The Lord sits enthroned forever. You see this sitting of the Lord denotes the quiet serenity of our God. He does not struggle, nor does he ever find himself in a perplexity when the enemy rises up as a flood, as we just heard in the the hymn that you all sang. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, nor resting, nor hasting, as silent as light. Even so, he sits enthroned forever. He remains calm, quiet, and composed. He in fact, taunts the wicked as they plot against Him in futility. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He sits in the serenity of Himself and in the security of Himself. He never panics nor retaliates for the sake of self-preservation as mortals do. He is perfectly sufficient to Himself in and of Himself, and absolutely independent. He is not forced to rely on a supply chain, as He demonstrated in Elijah. He doesn't get disturbed because of climate change. He is the climate change. Look at the flood. Look at Sodom. He is. Nor does He fear an insurrection. For his kingdom is not of this world. Nor can he be terrorized by even death itself. For he alone has immortality. And he has indisputably defeated death and destroyed its power forever. Oh, death, where is your sting? For I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. Who is like the Lord while sitting in serenity on His throne? He abundantly supplies grace for His people and with ease calls the terror of the ungodly to ambush them in the way, bringing about their immediate, irrevocable, and violent destruction. And this is but the veiling of His power. This is but our looking at Him as through a glass darkly and dimly. The Lord sits 
And fourthly, the Lord sits forever. So consider, lastly, His permanence. Oh, how many kingdoms have risen and fallen throughout the ages. If the mountains, the rocks, and hills could speak, oh, the tales would be multiplied of men gathering together, building for themselves a name, building for themselves glory and false security. So many great empires have grown up as trees, their tops reaching to the heavens and their branches expanding out over all the world, just like in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But they are soon enough cut down and uprooted. Men establish for themselves glorious dominions only to see the foundations crumble every time and their pride brought to ruins, erased by time. But there is one throne which is cast in the annals of eternity. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The eternal endurance of the Lord is here in our psalm is placed in stark contrast with the plight of David's enemies. In contrast with that of carnal men. Verse 5 and 6. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you, are, you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. Blotted out forever and ever. Everlasting ruins. Even the most mighty men are but mortals. Man's existence in this world is very temporal. And this must be realized by us for the comfort of the church. Because we realize we're not going to be here forever. As Austin alluded to this morning, the internal blessings, the internal work of the Spirit is what we are to look for now. But there is coming a day when God shall appear in the heavens on, on the clouds in the glory of the Father. And He shall consummate His kingdom in the earth. He shall glorify His saints. And His kingdom shall truly stretch forth from sea to shining sea. And we ourselves will be glorified. Never more to struggle with sin. Never more to feel the, the fiery breath of the serpent. No, no more to deal with the persecution of our enemies. There is coming a day, brothers and sisters, I promise it will be here sooner than you think. Your God will appear. And we shall behold Him face to face. The same God who created the heavens and the earth, the same God who appeared unto Abraham and said, I am God Almighty. The same God who appeared to Moses and said, My name is Yahweh. I shall be who I shall be. Trust that He shall come for you. 
Brothers and sisters, He will come. But this also, our, te- our temporal nature must also be understood for the frustration of sinners. For their perpetual end is sure to come. The days of flesh are numbered. Soon must we exit this present world. And when we do, we will emerge into eternity. Then every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ the Lord sits enthroned forever. Let us pray.